We moved up about one kilo without being shelled much and dug ourselves in some 500 yards in front of the German front lines. We were in a wood and had one infantry in front of us. We barely got ourselves out when the devil went loose in the woods. Lieutenant Menard Hamilton, Company C, 313th Machine Gun Battalion, 80th Division, AEF, Bois des Ogons, October 4th, 1918. Hey folks, welcome to the Battles of the First World War podcast episode 77, The Devil Went Loose in the Woods. We're going to begin the episode with a mighty fine shout out to listener Ryan, who gave a very generous gift to the podcast that just floored me. Thank you once again so very much. Shout out to Ryan's friend and fellow listener, Jeff who was once also known as Riceball. Sir, thank you for your service, and thank you for listening to the podcast. I believe Jeff is the first fighter pilot that I'm aware of who listens to the show. So, from British policemen to Australian miners, M-I-N-E-R-S, that kind of miners, to a then 21-year-old young woman who wrote an awesome review a year back, to American fighter pilots. What an amazing group we have here. I am thankful for you all. Shout out to Rob Laplander, who just joined the ranks of Patreon patrons. Thanks, man. I really appreciate it. And you, my good man, can just never get enough of me. You don't have to say anything. I know. Shout out to Brian W. from Canada. Christopher, Robert V, and Chance as well, who also joined up on Patreon. Thank you, gentlemen. Before we begin the episode, a quick note about the intro music you just heard and the outgoing music you will hear at the end of this episode. It's a new year, and what a perfect time to get new music for the show. That music comes courtesy of a different listener, Brian, who created these two pieces of music and generously shared them with the podcast. Folks, Brian emailed them to me out of the blue, but I replied to the effect, how did you know this was exactly what I had been waiting for? To me, both pieces capture the mood of the podcast and its subject. Brian creates music under the name Ashlingach, on the Bandcamp website. Links to his music will be posted in the episode notes. Folks, please go check it out. Please support Brian. He is amazing. Hope you enjoy.
back to the front, folks. As we discussed back in episode 75, Breaking the Argon, the AEF had to take the first three full days of October to replace, refit, and rest its units in the MERS area of operations. In that episode, we focused on the first corps of the United States First Army's left front. Here, the 77th and 28th Divisions continued grinding through the Argonne Forest, while the fresh 1st Division pushed its way up the River Air Valley to break the German defenses in the forest and relieve the suffering and surrounded forces of Charles Whittlesey's so-called Lost Battalion. The 82nd Division had eventually been called in to smash the Germans from the side. The plan worked, and the Germans began evacuating from the Argonne. For this episode, we'll focus on the 3rd Corps and the AEF 1st Army's right front. 5th Corps would have the hardest job, capturing the Romagna Heights beyond Montfaucon and the high ground within the Bois du Montsi and Bois du Romagne beyond the Romagna Heights. 3rd Corps would threaten the eastern flank of the Barrois Plateau to help its sister 5th Corps. More specifically, 3rd Corps would strike for the heights northwest of Cunel village and then help the 5th Corps with the hills north of the village of Romagne sous Montfaucon. The goal overall was to crack open the German defenses of the Hindenburg Line, which were to have been overrun back on September 26th. As we also discussed in episode 75, German 5th Army Commander General Georg von der Marwitz and every man under him knew these attacks were coming to disrupt any American efforts, either to mount fresh attacks or just try to hold current lines, German artillery from the right bank of the River Meuse rained shells constantly on the doughboys of 5th and 3rd Corps. 3rd Corps' 33rd Division, holding the line along the Meuse itself, hadn't moved in days. The men of the Golden Cross Division simply sat in trenches and shell holes, getting pummeled and gassed, nearly every hour of every day. It wasn't much better for the other divisions. In the rain and raw temperatures, underfed and underclothed doughboys crouched in the ruins of villages, in wet trenches, foxholes, and shell holes, unable to not hear the endless salvos of artillery shells screaming in towards them. Private Rush Young of the 318th Infantry Regiment, 80th Blue Ridge Division, wrote about how he and his fellow soldiers did their best to minimize the madness around them by talking nonsense. If this had lasted much longer, he wrote, we would all have gone crazy. Young's division was pulled out of the line, but very quickly pushed right back into it. The 80th Division sat wedged in between the veteran 3rd Division to its left and the veteran 4th Division to its right. To the right of the 4th Division was the 33rd, getting soaked with gas and shells by the bank of the Meuse. The 80th, 4th, and 33rd Divisions all belonged to Major General Robert Bullard's 3rd Corps. To the north of Nantiwa village lay three patches of woods in a roughly triangular shape. 
an unnamed wood at the left bottom base of the triangle, the Bois de Cunel at the apex, and at the right bottom corner of the triangle, the oddly shaped Bois des Ogons. This last patch of forest would need to be cleared before the 80th Division could continue the attack towards the Cunel Heights with the 4th Division. Tanks were to be there to support as the infantry attacked, and the Blue Ridge Doughboys were to advance regardless of the 3rd Division's efforts on their left. They were to stay in contact with 4th Division, however. From left to right, the 2nd Battalion, 318th Infantry Regiment, and the 2nd Battalion, 317th Infantry were to lead the assault. Elements of the 313th Machine Gun Battalion would support the infantry. On the left front, the 2nd Battalion of the 318th advanced forward from west of Nantiwa Village at 0525 on October 4th. As the American barrage fell on the Bois de Zogon, the Germans replied with a counter-barrage, firing high explosive and gas into the doughboys as they left their positions. Men collapsed just as the attack started. The Americans pushed through the fire and through the gas. They crossed a ridgeline, went through an open valley, and to the top of a hill named 274. From there, it was down the northern slope of the hill, exposed to enemy fire the entire time, and into a hollow near the Bois de Zogon. Here, the doughboys found the tanks, heavy ones, as described by Ed Langle in his book To Conquer Hell, so they must have been French saint Chamons. They stayed until one of the tanks took a direct hit from a German artillery shell. After that, the surviving tanks pulled back, with enemy shells plowing into the earth all around them. The doughboys stood up and attacked towards the wood again. German artillery and machine gun fire hit them from three sides, knocking men over like bowling pins. Still, some soldiers made it to the edge of the Bois des Ogons, where the Germans cut into them with merciless fire. This was when the surviving troops broke ranks and pulled back to Hill 274, which offered scant shelter. The Germans pounded the hill with artillery and gas, giving the Americans no break. On the right, the second of the 317th lost its way as it marched up to the front in the early hours of the morning. The supporting 1st Battalion was called forward to lead the attack. As the units worked themselves out, the barrage and the tanks set off, and thus their support was lost. When the Doughboys finally set off at 0600, they were greeted with German artillery that followed them as they charged across open ground. Most men made it only halfway to the wood before dropping dead or dropping down to dig in for dear life. A small group of doughboys pushed forward and reached the southern edge of the woods where they too were raked with high explosive and gas shells. Whoever made it through the attack ran back through the gauntlet to the day's starting lines. Attacks made in the afternoon were broken up by German artillery. A late attack by the men of the 319th Infantry in the late evening pushed into the woods and fought it out with the defending Germans there, but they could not hold. They pulled back to the southern edge of the wood where they managed to make contact with the 3rd Division to their left. 
Sergeant Charles Ray of Company C, 313th Machine Gun Battalion, was in the afternoon attack on Bois des Ogons. His testimony comes to us thanks to Andrew Capitz's excellent book, Good War, Great Men, the detailed accounts of a machine gun battalion during World War I. It's seriously a great book, and if you look on my social media accounts, you will see that I have posted about it, as well as provided links where you can purchase a copy. Andrew's own grandfather served in Company C of the 313th. Links to Andrew's book will also be provided in the episode notes. Back to Sergeant Ray. Quote, On October 4th, our platoon received orders to go over the top at 5 o'clock that night. We were to go to the top of the hill in a diagonal direction and fall in behind the first wave of infantry. The sun was still in the sky when we pulled out. The front was quiet. We came to the point where the infantry was supposed to be. Lieutenant Gilbert Thorne of New York and I were at the head of the column. At this point, I said, this don't look good. We were moving down a sloping hill, and now we're in full sight of where the Germans were supposed to be in the wooded area ahead. The lieutenant said, I think they have retreated, and the infantry has already gone into the wood. Our men, carrying machine guns, tripods, and ammunition still moved forward, but not a shell was fired. We were within a few yards of the woods when the machine guns opened up. The flashing fire of guns seemed only a few feet away. They took the troop from the back to the front. The entire group went down like one man. I died for cover, but it was too shallow, and I felt a bullet hit my helmet, and another went through my coat sleeve. It was then that I broke and ran for a hedge only a few feet away. I was only carrying a light pack pistol and field map case, so I traveled fast with the bullets plowing up the earth around my feet as I ran, going over the hedge head first. I practically landed in a shallow bivy and hugged the ground face down with my feet sticking up. They kept their guns searching up and down the hedge because they knew some others were back there. Strange as it may seem, Lieutenant Thorne and I at the head of the column both came back. The Germans in some way must have called for the artillery help for about this time the shells began to rain down on us and the American artillery opened up so we were caught between the two. Apparently, we were far enough away from the American artillery to miss us, and too close to the German line to get us, but big chunks of earth rolled down on us. As things quieted down, I wondered how to get out of this. From where I lay, I could see two of our men getting ready to make a run for it. They were heading for a small gully that protected from view by the hedge. Just as they reached the gully, I noticed machine gun fire coming from an abandoned tank and it looked right up the gully. They both went down like one. It was Condon and Stuhlfeld, both from Erie, Pennsylvania. I met Condon years later and he told me they were hit, he with about a dozen bullets in his right arm. He played possum and later crawled out after darkness. Stuhlfeld, he said, was badly wounded and started to move and they killed him with another burst of fire. That is when I decided to stay put until dark. We were close enough, the Germans, to hear them talk, so there was the thought of them coming over to take us prisoners or stick a bayonet in our back. Darkness finally came, and as it did, I unsnapped my pack containing hard rations and all. I only took with me my pistol, field glasses, first aid kit, and map case, leaving the rest in the bivy. 
First, I crawled along the hedge, and the first living soldier I came to was Discipio of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I said to him in a whisper, Come on, let's get out of here. He only said, I'm riddled with bullets. Just let me lay here and die. Next, I came to Berktold of Erie, Pennsylvania. Though he was badly wounded with a bullet or bullets through both hips, he was anxious to go. He stood up, put an arm around my shoulder, and we started to walk out. We had not gone far when the Germans started shooting up flares. It was light as day, and they spotted us and again opened fire. So from then on, we crawled and laid low when the flares went up. We were getting near the crest of the hill when we heard our troops coming forward. I knew this was a dangerous situation, as they could only take us for Germans coming from that direction. We took cover in a shell hole and waited for them to pass. By this time, Berktold had become weak from loss of blood. We decided it better for me to go back and get stretcher bearers. I marked a spot by a small maple tree nearby so I could find it. I went for the rear. The flares would go up and blind you. I would only come out of one shell hole to fall into another. Finally, I found the first aid station and got in touch with the officer in charge telling him what had happened and asked for the stretcher bearers to go back with me and pick up Berktold and others. He refused, saying it would be suicide to send men out there under this heavy fire. The next morning at the first aid station, I learned that Berktold had crawled in during the night and was sent to the base hospital. I believe there was one other badly wounded soldier named Shields who crawled in that night. Outside the first aid station, dead were ricked up just like cordwood, and the fields were completely covered with the dead. I have never learned what happened that could have sent our platoon into that front without any protection. The only explanation I was ever given was that the infantry got word to hold until 7 p.m., and that the runner or messenger got killed on the way to our headquarters. Anyhow, the platoon was wiped out, except for perhaps half a dozen or so. I never have heard how many were left. End quote. The chaos of combat conditions in the Meuse put enormous strain on the officers who led from the front. Lieutenant Menard Hamilton, also of Company C of the 313th Machine Gun Battalion, saw himself faced with that potentially catastrophic situation, and even more horrifying, one of his own making. Again, from Andrew Caput's Good War, Great Men, quote, October 3rd through 6th, 1918. This day has lasted for 96 hours, more or less. On October 3rd, we got orders just as we were preparing to go to bed to go into the attack. I was not so damn pleased. When you've got your mind all set for the hay, you hate like thunder. And when I say you hate like thunder, I mean every word of it, to have to go into an attack of any kind. Anyhow, we packed and moved up into position just behind the front line. We bivouacked on the ground and got a little sleep, but as it drizzled a little and we were shelled a little and were scared a little, sleep was not too good. Our barrage came down early and shortly after that we started forward. This warfare is quite open and we moved along the roads without transport. We went through, censored, which we took a couple of days ago, and God knows how they did it because it sits way up on a hill and looks absolutely impregnable. However, the Yanks took it 
And today, when we went through it, the place was a mess. Now, before I go on, I'd like to say that yesterday, Lynn and I had a look at the German lines in the distance and decided that they only had one piece of artillery, which they probably moved from place to place, and no infantry at all. Why, they had all gone back to the Rhine, said Lynn, and I agreed with him. Well, we were wrong, as subsequent events will show. We parked our transport much further forward than was safe. The adjutant came running up shortly, shouting above the roar of the guns, spread that transport out, the place is being shelled. I ran over to the limbers and told them to scatter out, and the words were barely out of my mouth before a big shell hit within twenty yards of me, bowling one of my sergeants completely over twice, although he got up unhurt. The transport scattered all right and went in all directions like chickens in front of an automobile and had hardly moved away before a shell dropped in the exact place they had been. I went and told the captain, They are all scattered, sir. He answered, I'm hit. He certainly looked it. I think he thought he was killed, but it was the best wound I ever saw. A piece of the shell that had bowled over my sergeant had gone in the point of his shoulder and had inflicted the best blighty that ever a man hoped for. We tied him up and laid him in a trench, and later he went off to the dressing station. After that, the shelling got worse, and we had to get down. I had a little bit of a trench and was snug as the proverbial bug. I went out some time later and went around to see how the men were getting on. They were scattered around in shell holes and were getting on all right, although the shelling was hot. I saw one man lying down and thought for a second it was good old Lynn. My heart stood still, and I hardly dared look at him. He was quite dead, horribly mashed by a shell. But thank God it was not Leinhauser. It was the battalion dentist, Lieutenant Parsons. And what he was doing going over the top, God knows. It was hard luck, too. He had been hit in the leg, had that tied up and crawling into a trench, and had been hit by a shell and killed instantly. A married man, too. Incidentally, I almost got it myself a couple of times, and twice flattened myself into the grass while the deadly ground shrapnel raked up the dirt around me. We stayed there all morning and finally got orders to move forward. I got the company together and moved forward. Just as we started, a shell sailed over our head and burst 200 yards behind. I knew instinctively that the next would be shorter and hurried them all I could and just barely got the tail of the column clear of the place before the next one came in with a crash just where we had been. We moved up about one kilo without being shelled much and dug ourselves in some 500 yards in front of the German front lines. We were in a wood and had one infantry in front of us. We barely got ourselves out when the devil went loose in the woods. Each man had dug a little trench for himself just big enough to lie down in. I had one big enough for two and lay in a shallow hole with Bobby Stoddard for 24 hours under the German barrage. I don't remember ever having such a bad time. The shells hit everywhere but right on my hole, and by George, it was bad. Bang! Wang! Zip! Crash! Pow! Zow! Bluey! They would let up for a minute, and you would take a deep breath, and then they would start again. Towards evening, I went forward to connect up with our infantry, and had not gone fifty yards before they pinned me to earth with enough shells to annihilate the British army. 
I lay flat for half an hour, and when they let up, I started out again and had not gone another 50 yards when they began it again. I finally got out to the edge of the woods and was promptly sniped at by the Germans, but they were poor shots and missed both times. I finally got back to my hole and spent a rotten night under continuous shell fire. The night ended in a furious barrage and then quiet while both sides had some breakfast. We had wonderful luck and only had four men hit. I don't see how it was possible. Theoretically, nothing could live under fire like that, but we did, and the only cover we had was these six by three by two holes. I moved my guns later as I got my order saying that I was responsible for the left flank of the division and a different disposition was necessary. I also moved my headquarters and got into a half-destroyed German dugout. It wouldn't have stopped anything, but it it had head cover and was splinter-proof and increased my morale a lot. I see now why the ostrich puts its head in the sand to increase its morale. Believe me, however, we got shelled all right, and it's a wonder we didn't get blown in. But we didn't. At five minutes to five, I got an order to send four guns forward with the infantry who would attack at five o'clock. I ran all the way to my most advanced guns and told them they must leave at once. I hurried them all I could to allow them to get through before the counter barrage came down. Our barrage was to have started at five, but there was so much shelling going on that you couldn't tell what was barrage and what wasn't. I saw them go forward over the ridge, and as they went, I wished them good luck, little knowing what was in store for them. They topped the crest and disappeared, and then I heard the German machine guns open. I didn't know what they were shooting at, but I felt it must be my men, and I couldn't understand it, because if the infantry had gone forward at five, there should not have been any machine guns there. I went back and told Lynn. Good God, man, said he. That order said 5.30, not five. I had given the order to Gilbert Thorne so I couldn't tell for sure, but the cold sweat broke out on me. I had sent them over before our own infantry. I had made a most terrible mistake. I had sent a whole platoon to certain death through misreading an order. Good Christ in heaven, what am I to do? They have gone now. I can't possibly stop them. Lynn is never wrong. He saw the order and said it said 5.30. Oh God, I was sick. I waited in anguish for 5.30 to see if the barrage came down. Then, sure enough, the artillery fire doubled at 5.30 and at 6 was a continuous roar. Just after 6, I saw the German SOS lights go up and I knew that a mistake was made. A thousand thoughts flashed through my mind. I had sent a whole platoon to perdition. I, I would commit suicide. No, not that. I would resign my commission and enlist. No, that wouldn't do either. Then I thought, well, maybe the order said five o'clock after all, and that would clear me. And then I thought that Gilbert, who had the order, would probably be killed, and I'd never know whether I had made the mistake or not. All this time, orders were coming in, and things had to be attended to, and I had to force my tormented mind to think about the rest of the company. A lot of letters came in from Gilbert's fiancée, and that didn't make matters any better. It was terrible. Finally, a wild-eyed runner came in to say that the platoon had advanced to within 100 yards of the German lines and then had had a dozen machine guns open on them. He said he crawled on his hands and knees and the rest of the platoon had been wiped out. He had seen Gilbert go down and I believed he had been killed. 
It was the worst possible news. I am going, and I think, what can I say to Gil's girl? How can I ever stay in the army? How can I ever look anyone in the eye again? And all the time I have to think about tomorrow's advance. Finally, in comes Gilbert himself, risen from the dead. He was crying like a baby and confirmed what the previous runner had said. They walked directly into a machine gun nest and only three managed to crawl out again on their hands and knees. Gilbert had been in charge of the platoon. The major was there. Have you the order? he asked. Yes, sobbed Gilbert, and he held out a crumpled piece of paper. The major took it and read it. He had signed it. He handed it to me without a word. I swear my hands shook and I hardly dared look at it. It read as follows. The infantry will attack at 5 p.m., etc. My heart leaped into my throat. The mistake was not mine. I almost broke down. The strain had been horrible. The miracle came later. The platoon had not been wiped out. Practically all of them had managed to crawl back. Two were killed, Stuhlfout and Caldwell. Five unaccounted for. Seven wounded and twenty untouched. I, I don't understand it. It was broad daylight and the Germans let them get within a hundred yards and there was no cover at all. It was a miracle, and that's all there was to it. The next day, nothing much happened. The infantry attack of last night was successful, and we expected to follow them up all day and lead many conflicting orders and rumors. The day finally passed without our moving. The shelling was terrific all day. The Bosch got flank fire on us from across the river and put down all he had. His artillery is marvelous. He puts them just where he wants them, and it was most unpleasant. Our bivvy would not stand a direct hit, and it seemed only a question of time before he got one. The strain of waiting makes you want to go to sleep the minute the shells stop. He used a bit of gas on us, and it wasn't nice. The next morning we were taken out, and nobody was sorry. I think we have had as much concentrated hell in these three days as is possible. We came back the way we came in, and the very same trenches that we left a few days ago. We went back to our same old dugout and went to bed. We were all dead tired. Spent one night there, and the next morning moved back three miles, almost out of shell fire, and it's great relief. I don't know whether we are going in again or out for a rest. The main thing is we are now out. We have been in the thick of it since the first army attacked on September 26, and I think today is about the 9th of October, almost two weeks. We are pretty tired. The men are in rags, and we've had quite a few casualties. I can't write down a lot more on account of the censor, and a lot more because I am so tired and fed up. I don't see why I am alive at all. Our infantry has done wonders, and some of our green divisions have fought like veterans in this most difficult sort of country. All woods and swamps and machine gun nests and fighting in the open against heavy artillery. I was quite wrong about the Hun. There are plenty of them left, and their tactics are admirable. They know the game better than we do. Although man for man, we can lick the spots out of them. Our engineers have built roads and bridges in marvelous fashion. They had to do most of the work under shellfire, and much of our success is due to them. Our rations have gotten up without fail, and the weather has been in our favor too. 
Our division has certainly made good, and I hope we'll now be taken out for a rest. But if we have to go in again, I reckon it won't kill us, and we'll drive the Hun some more. I have been promoted captain, and as Captain Keem was wounded, I am in charge of C Company. I shall begin to keep this diary regularly as soon as I get caught up on sleep, which is not yet. End quote. To the right of the 80th Division, 4th Division was ordered to bull its way through three woods to its north. In order, they were Bois de Fay, Bois de Melomont, and Bois de Forêt. By the way, Bois de Forêt means forest wood, which is kind of like woody forest or something. I just always think of it as a little silly. With the 80th Division taking Bois de Zogon, they would be able to support the 4th from the southwest. Once these woods were cut through, the Ivy Division would have the chance to break east into Brouilleur-sur-Meur's village, and from there, it could roll up the Krimhildestellung from east to west. It was the 58th Infantry Regiment that led the charge into the foggy morning as the American barrage sailed and then crashed into the Bois de Fay. Here, the Americans made it into the woods, and once in among the trees, spirits were raised. The doughboys began closing in on German positions in the woods and flushing them out, killing or wounding anyone they found. Here, amongst the broken trees and smoking shell holes, they were able to hit back at the enemy. The Ivy Doughboys pushed through the Bois de Fay, the Bois de Melamont, and all the way into the Bois de Forêt, battling it out on a more equal basis with the Germans they encountered. They briefly cut the road between Brieux and Cunel. By that point, the Germans had learned to draw the enemy in and then cut them off with artillery fire to their rear. This was what happened. And in the Bois de Forêt, the fire became so intense the Americans had to pull back all the way to the north edge of Bois de Fay. Along the Meurs battlefront, there was now a new round of grinding fighting. In the Aragon, Charles Whittlesey and his surrounded command in the Charlevoix Ravine struggled to hang on to the blasted side of hill where they had dug in. At the other end of the 1st Army, the 33rd Division simply sat under a cloud of poisonous gas, with high explosive shells also raining down on them all the time. 1st Corps continued hammering away at the Argonne defenses, and the divisions of 5th Corps hadn't yet broken through on their front either. The divisions of 3rd Corps kept grinding on. The 80th Division attacked Bois de Zogon again on October 5th. Major General Adelbert Cronkite, the division commander, had sent his subordinate commanders a message. The reputation of the division is at stake. The Bois de Zogon must be taken. His command was also at stake. If he was seen as insufficiently energetic at his job, he would be sacked immediately. Should the Blue Ridge Division not succeed, Cronkite's good old boy corps commander... Major General Robert Bullard had told him he'd lose his command within 24 hours. The Blue Ridge boys attacked again over the same ground as the day before. 
advancing through clouds of mustard gas as shells exploded among them and German fighter planes swooped in low to strafe them with machine guns. Private Rush Young and his battalion, nicknamed the Red Squirrels, was part of the next wave of doughboys that attacked at noon. Quote, An officer's whistle blew, and the Red Squirrels jumped off for the attack. As we reached the crest of the hill, it was one solid sea of shell craters. Not one foot of land remained that had not been torn up by the big shells. Machine guns were popping in every direction. Off we went for the woods as fast as we could go. Whiz, bang, whiz, bang, crash, crash. And a big shell burst in front of me just at the edge of the woods, scattering chunks of human flesh all over the ground. On the limb of a tree about ten feet high hung a man's leg with the shoe and wrap leggings still on it. Poor soldier, who could he be? End quote. Rush and the other remaining men in his battalion crashed into the Bois des Ogons, where they met little real opposition, until the Germans rained machine gun fire, trench mortar shells, and whiz-bangs down on them. A German counterattack never materialized. On the evening of the 5th, the 80th Division threw its entire weight into another attack on the wood. When the Doughboys rushed back into the woods, they discovered that the Germans had just evacuated it. It was an empty victory. To their right, the 4th Division remained stuck in the Bois de Fay for the next several days, enduring German counterattacks and constant shelling inside a deadly salient. Sergeant Major James Block of the 58th Infantry wrote regarding his time in the wood. Quote, It is said that the Bois de Fay means wood of the fairies. Were I to name it, I would call it the center of hell. Any man who ever spent any time in those woods from the 4th to the 17th of October knows that even that term does not adequately express the true situation. The shell-torn woods were wet and muddy. Everything was wet and damp, raw, cold, and clammy. Not a breeze blew to clear the gas-laden air. The sun never shone. It was always dark and murky. Down the sides of our foxholes, water trickled or seeped through the walls. From all sides came the odor of death or decay, mangled bodies of men everywhere. Our bodies ached from the cold and wet. The foul surroundings made one sick at heart. We were hungry, yet unable to eat but little of the food which came up. For hours at a time we were forced to be without water, for to go after it was to gamble with death. The mental strain was maddening. The physical strain exhausted us, yet we had to be alert. Sleep was impossible. The enemy counterattacked again and again, but was repulsed each time. When the Bosch were not counterattacking, they were shelling our positions. We had to lay there and hold. We had to take all the punishment with our hands tied. End quote. Along the American line in the Meuse, Sergeant Major Block's sentiment would have received tired and weary nods of approval. The Americans were indeed taking a lot of punishment from the German army. Next episode, we shift over to 5th Corps 
to see how its attacks of October 4th fared. Questions, comments, or concerns, please don't hesitate to contact me at verdunpodcast at gmail.com. Get at me on Twitter at at WW1podcast. Check out the BFWWP website, firstworldwarpodcast.com, for some photos. And check out the Battles of the First World War podcast page on the Facebook. Thank you so much for listening. Talk to you again soon. Take care.